You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway, Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible. Hello and welcome again to Take Two, a podcast about books. I'm Mike Murphy and I welcome you on behalf of Senior Times and let me remind you of our format. Our guest is John Banville and uh, John and I have each chosen a book we've enjoyed and wished the other to read. And later John will introduce us to something he feels may have been overlooked in the literary area. Today we're talking about Iris Murdoch's novel A Severed Head and The Tower by W.B. Yeats. But we begin with my choice and it's called Cokeland, the secret history of coke industries and corporate power in America, written by Christopher Leonard. By the way, Coke, K-O-C-H, it is pronounced Coke, is the name of the Coke family, the second wealthiest family in the United States after the Waltons, who own Walmart. Now, I have no doubt with all the recent increases in stock market prices that Bezos and um, Gates and the other some of the other families are bigger than them, but this book was written uh, two years ago, so at that stage, that was the situation. The Cokes are responsible for the creation of the Republican Tea Party, and they're sworn enemies of the Environmental Protection Agency. In fact, they're probably America's greatest polluters. John, they're an unbelievable clan, aren't they? Well, they're horrifying. Uh, this is a horrifying book. Uh, it's an enormous tome, much too long. Could have been about half the length. But it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, horribly fascinating. These are a ghastly crew of gangsters and polluters and all-round baddies. And, uh, of course, they give millions upon millions to uh, charities and so on to make themselves look good, but they're crooks. Mm. They started out as crooks. They started by stealing oil from the Indian reservations. Uh, they had an ingenious thing where they just skimmed a little bit off each mm. lorry load. And, of course, a little bit of many, many, many lorry loads comes to a lot of money. And uh, Charles Coke became... $10 million, $10 million. Dollars yeah. per annum is yeah. what it came to. Yeah, and this is way back in... Way back when, uh, and Charles Coke was running this, uh, as I say, a crook, straightforward crook. Of course, he would disagree with you. And incidentally, I, by the way, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure you're aware, recently, Charles, who is the only one uh, of the brothers, there were four remaining alive, um, and Charles Cook would now be in his mid to late 80s, and he has now started a new organization called Stand Together, in which he's uh, all in favor of responsible immigration, he's in favor of uh, rehabilitating prisoners, he's in favor, he's not going to be in favor of any one of the, the political parties, neither Republican nor Democrat. My view would be that he has seen these books, and there have been a number of them about the Cokes, and they've all of them had the same reaction as you, and anybody who reads it feels exactly the same way as you did. And I think we're on a, on a self-reparation job before he slips off into the night. I bet he has some way of making money out of it. <laughs> That's all he cares about is money, 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 money. Yeah. Now, you know, even most people who go after money are really after power. This man is just after money. Yeah. He just loves money. He can't get enough of it. He can't get enough, but it's not as if he's spending it on an ostentatious lifestyle. I mean, they, they occupy a big black Q 
cube of a building in Wichita in Kansas. That's their HQ. They've 120,000 employees in 60 different countries around the world. And every employee has to learn the management guide by Charles Koch off by heart. If they don't know it off by heart, they get fired. Yes, it's a kind of cult. It's yeah. a cult based on money. Um, they really are a bad lot. Look, it's absolutely fascinating to read this book because you realise that we don't know anything. Us ordinary folk, we really don't know anything about the world, about the real world. I read somewhere recently that a bunch of journalists have been investigating for the past 15 years or so, and they've come up with the fact that there is between something like 25 and $30 trillion floating around the world that's unaccounted for. No tax, no, it just keeps moving and moving. That is an inconceivably large amount of money. I mean, we throw these figures around nowadays because we've got used to them. But a trillion dollars is an inconceivable amount of money. Mm. And these are the people who are doing it. These, these are moving. So there's a whole world of money and power and influence that, that we know nothing about. It affects us at every moment and every part yeah. of our lives, but we're not aware of it. One of the points, in fact, with relation to that, that Mr. Leonard makes is that, and if I may quote, millions use Coke products without knowing gasoline, jet fuel, fertilizer, diapers, carpets, chemicals for plastic bottles and pipes, plywood, napkins, paper towels, stationery, newspaper. And the annual revenue, and this was, again is two years ago he wrote this, the annual revenue is larger than Facebook, Goldman Sachs and U.S. Steel combined. It is mind-boggling, isn't it? It is mind-boggling. And I'm glad to hear you say that he's doing a few seemingly good things now, a bit late in his life. Uh, too late, really, uh, if there is a lord, and I wish there were sometimes. Uh, Mr. Coke, well, he could probably love Mr. Coke, of course. Charles is a libertarian. This, and, and I never knew really what a libertarian was. Apparently, a libertarian does not want any influence from the federal government except to protect private property. And other than that, um, he says they should, they should lead, um, but he says nothing outside of protecting private property, that the market forces should lead everything that we do, own, have and respect. Well, it largely does, of course, as we discovered in 2008. Uh, I had a fascinating rumour the other day that we were saved in 2008 by drug money. The drug cartels, they were the people who were lending all these billions and billions of dollars to governments. Not, of course, directly, but that's where the money was. Because it did strike me at the time, you know, if we've gone broke, how come we're able to borrow all this money? Where is it coming from? From that's, the drug cartels. I wonder, isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing and um, horrifying? You know, you started out by, by saying, and the book begins with this thing about the Osage and the Cherokee Native American tribes own a number of the oil fields in their, their areas in Oklahoma and various other places like that. And these guys, the Coke employees are going around, they're permitted to take, say, 100 gallons out of each one every day, but they, make, but they are told by their bosses, Charles Coke, you must take an extra gallon from each one. The interesting thing is that, that the gaff was blown by, by one of the brothers. Bill went to the FBI and the Department of Justice, blew the gaff, and that's how the, it came out, that they were robbing the Native Americans. Yes, like all families, especially all rich families, of course, they squabble among themselves like nobody's business. But yes, I mean, it is important to emphasize that they were stealing. They're thieves. 
they made the money on stealing oil from the Indian reservations. Isn't their record on pollution simply horrifying? It's... I suppose the Cokes are among the leading climate change deniers. Yeah. Uh, they are, as we've said, among the greatest polluters. They have had a hand in the large-scale pollution and destruction of the environment. And imagine what Putin is doing in Russia that we don't even know about. Mm. Yeah, they allow- God help our children. I'm glad we're seniors. Yes. Um, they've allowed ammonia, vast quantities of ammonia, to spill into rivers near their operations. And um, when, when Obama tried to impose a carbon tax and to try and do something to help the Environmental Protection Agency, they launched millions in lobbying. They're the, they're the biggest lobbyists in the United States. Yes, I mean, they defeated Obama. But the irony is that so-called Obamacare, the healthcare project that he brought in, that was sort of saved by the Cokes only because they didn't like what Trump was doing. He wasn't doing enough. He wasn't being wicked enough. I couldn't get a grasp on where they stand with Trump. I do know there's a quote in the book from Charles, and he says that in 2018, this would be two years now after Trump was elected, uh, he made the point that I, I have made more money in the last two years than I made in the previous 50. So was that the tax relief that Trump gave to all? Oh, yes, all? of course. It of must have been. I mean, this is, this is the source of Trump's power as well as the populism. Uh, and the paranoia of large swathe of American people. There is the fact that he's making the, the rich richer all the time. Also, too, from the, uh, where I was mentioning, the employees have got to learn off the management code, word for word. Effectively, the Cokes killed the unions in the United oh, yes. States. Oh, yes. I mean, they took them on full-bloodedly, and they effectively killed the unions. Yes, they don't want anybody challenging their power. And this is one of the reasons that they're wary of Trump because if Trump, if he gets back in and has absolute power, he would be uh, a threat to them. Not that he'd be doing anything for us. They'd be just like, you know, Godzilla meets King Kong. Where, where would he be a threat to them? Where do you see that? Where would he be a threat to them? He would take power away from them. It's all about power. Mm. They've insulted him. They've said dreadful things about him. And he, Trump, never forgets. Never forgets. Interesting that it goes back. The father, they, they were maintaining we came from a poor family, but such was not the case at all. <laughs> the father was quite a wealthy person. Yeah. But again, he got into trouble with the government at the time for, for stealing oil, same thing. And he was the founder. He actually went off to Nazi Germany and helped construct the third largest oil refinery. He went to Russia and did the same um, in in Stalin's Russia. And uh, then he came back and he formed the John Birch Society in the United States and uh, went, had a go at Eisenhower at the time because he said, you're a communist stooge. Yes. I mean, that was one of the reasons that Eisenhower warned against the military-industrial complex taking over America. Everything that has been great for the Cokes, has really been catastrophic for America. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's almost literally unspeakable. One can hardly speak about it. It's so dreadful. These people are such, such big-time crooks. I mean, the mafia has nothing on them. Did Citizen Kane come to mind? 
Yes, of course. It, of course. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, Charles Koch is a living cliché. The man who has no life has untold billions that yeah. he can do nothing with. What's the point of having all that money? You know, it's just, it's just on paper somewhere. He can't even go down and gloat over it in his, in his vault because the bullion isn't there, it's just paper. David is now dead. His, his brother is dead. Yeah. And the other two brothers didn't go along with what um, Charles was doing. I think he bought, he bought one of the brothers out um, and there was a huge court case about it. But um, also, he, they, he insisted, Charles, we will never become a public company where we want everything to remain in-house. Mm-hmm. Never, we don't want anybody knowing mm-hmm. our business. And apparently in 1981, he was offered $20 million overnight to take uh, Coke public. And he said, absolutely no, he didn't mm-hmm. want to. Of course, we, yes, and we should also mention the villains who work for him, the lawyers and the economists and the, all those people who are supporting that system and who, who have bought into it, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally and figuratively, uh, you know, they are a disgrace. And you know, America's a great country, great, beautiful, generous-hearted country. Used to be, will be again. And these people are the worms in the bud. They're destroying it from the inside out. But they are the, the black soul of it, aren't they? They are. And I mean, it's it's only when you read about it, and I suppose at the moment with um, with Trump in there, there's a kind of a, a, a nastiness abroad in the air in the United States, and these people are not blameless. They have fed it and fostered it through the years. There's a strange self-destructive drive in America at the moment, uh, but you know, this all started, at least with Nixon. Yeah. Nixon practically destroyed the political system in America. Again, from the inside, he corrupted it. Yeah. Uh, and then Reagan deregulated everything, destroyed the economy. When Reagan came in, promising cuts in this, that and the other, the, the national debt was something like a trillion. When he left, it was two and a half trillion. So he just drove the country into further debt. Poor Americans, you know, they're such, they're such decent people at heart. And they're betrayed again and again and again. They seem to love their betrayers. They do. They do. I must mention this. Um, when, when David, the brother who, who died, he stood in 1980, he stood as the libertarian candidate for vice president. And one of the things he wanted was to abolish Medicare. He wanted to abolish Social Security and to privatize all roads, schools, the mail delivery, which sounds ironic at the moment, and to repeal all taxation. Yes. I mean, sinister stuff. We want to own the country. They were the people who went from Europe back in the 18th century. Yeah. Took over the country, killed all the Indians, slaughtered the buffalo, brought the blacks over and had them as slaves. These are the same people. What did you think of the book? I, I know that the content of it is quite shocking and it's horrific and it's an awful reflection on what's happening and has been happening in the United States. But what, what, what was your view? You, you, I mean, I think you were really shocked by what you read. Would that be fair? Yes, I suppose. I had thought I was beyond being shocked. But the, the misdeeds of these people and the things they got away with, yes, even I'm shocked. The book is good. It's well written. It's wonderfully well-researched. I mean, he put a huge amount of work into it. It's quite thrilling in places, horribly thrilling, again, as you read about the 
the evil deeds of these these robbers and these robber barons. Uh, but yes, it's a, it's a fine book. I would certainly recommend it. Good. Okay, that's Copeland, and it's by Christopher Leonard. Our health service is here for you this winter, and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working, from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850-24-1850 for more information. From the HSE. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle. The interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Herald. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. Welcome back. Mike Burphy here. I'm with John Banville. And John, we're coming to our, our middle bit, as we kind of called it, where you would like to reintroduce a piece that you feel should be recognised uh, by more people and perhaps uh, more regularly. What is it that you have in store for us today? I'm going to talk about Yeats's. 1928 collection of poems called The Tower. The volume is called The Tower. Many people know many poems of Yeats's, but I'm not sure how many people know this book as a book. It's not very long, not a great many poems in it, but I think it is one of, if not the greatest single collection of poems ever published. It has at least half a dozen masterpieces, and there isn't a single poem in the book that's less than superb. It has Sailing to Byzantium. It has the title poem, The Tower. It is 1919. It has A Prayer for My Son. It has Laid on the Swan. It has Among School Children. It has The Gift of Harun al-Rashid. And it has All Souls Night. Those are superb poems, and all of them are in this little book. Uh, there are some others uh, which are superb as well. Um, I think the, the, the centerpiece of it is Laid in the Swan, that, that great, great poem, which, <laughs> which, curiously enough, Yeats began as a poem about Mussolini. And somehow, by that strange process by which poetry is made, it ended up being about the legend of Laid in the Swan. And I'll read it. I'm sure most people know it, but it's wonderful to hear it again, to hear the, the great dark harsh music of it, of his late poetry. 
later and the swan. A sudden blow, the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill. He holds her helpless breast upon his breast. How can those terrified, vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? And how can body laid in that white rush but feel the strange heart beating where it lies? A shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead. Being so caught up, so mastered by the brute blood of the air, did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? Yeats, at the end, simplified things. He used very simplified vocabulary. It's largely monosyllabic poetry, uh, that, that, that beat of word after word. It is... Absolutely astonishingly good. Um, and he knew it. He knew how good it was. He knew what he was doing. Do you hear his voice? When, 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 you, when one hears recordings of his voice, he has this thin, reedy voice. Oh, I try not to hear him. He used to chant the poems. Yes. It's awful, awful. No poet should ever be let near his own poetry. Um, I, do, I don't hear his voice. I hear awful to say really but I hear his soul uh, and his soul was a dark and twisted thing by that stage of his life okay let's talk about it he he wrote this about four or five years after he had won the Nobel Prize as you say he se- he seems to have I wouldn't like I don't want to use the word simplified but um, he seems to have been very more relaxed in the writing of his poetry, having won the Nobel Prize, than he might have been uh, heretofore. Would you? Is that is that a valuable opinion? Well, I hope it's not the case. I mean, I hope a great artist would not be affected by winning a prize. Uh, of course, his circumstances were better because he was broke. You know the famous story that when the editor of the Irish Times, who wasn't smiling by the way, it was somebody else, phoned him up to tell him that he'd. Dear Senator Yates, I have news for you that you have been awarded the Nobel Prize. And he said, yes, man, how much, how much? How much? Because <laughs> they were fat broke uh, and they needed the money. And they celebrated by uh, going down to the basement and frying up a feed of sausages, himself and Georgie. Um, but I would, as I say, I would be horrified to think that winning a prize changed his work. Art doesn't work that way. Real art is not influenced by the opinion of the world. And if it is, it's, it's weakened by it. Uh, great art makes itself. It has its own rules, its own demands. Uh, it, is not, it is not to be influenced. He had really assumed the mantle of Ireland's poet or of an Irish poet, dealing with Irish subjects. I, am, I think a lot of the poets of the time were looking to classical themes and Arcadia and things like that. He made a conscious decision, didn't he, that I am going to write about Irish subjects, Irish places, Irish traditions. Oh, yes. He lived in London when he was young. He was going to be a London poet. He was going to be an English poet. And then he suddenly spotted an opportunity. He thought, there's, there's this country over there with all these myths that nobody knows about. I'll go over there and become the poet. But Georgie, who was... Georgie Yates, who was in her way as great as, as William Butler Yeats, she said about him, she said, all this mystical, political stuff, it was all just in order to make poetry. This is the thing that no artist ever believes in anything. 
except art. Everything is material. The notion that Yeats was a great patriotic Irish man is nonsense. Artists are not patriotic. They couldn't be. They wouldn't be able to make art if they were. They might be as citizens. They could be anything. They could be mass murderers as citizens. They could be an anti-Semite, like the French novelist Céline. Uh, but when they sit down to do their art, they're just artists and they don't care about anything else. But they're using other This is a, other this is a, great, this is a great heresy, and people are always shocked when they hear it said. But it's, it's simply true. You, you cannot be thinking of other things while you're making art. All you can think about is making the art. You can't think about, I am the spirit of you're, Ireland. You're I'm not, going to speak. You're not consciously making art, are you? You're writing a poem. But well, however, however you want to describe it, but the, whatever the process is, it is a process, and it, it doesn't allow of other well then considerations. Well, then if he's okay, you mentioned he he got involved in spiritualism, he got involved in occultism, and then he became involved in Irish politics willy nilly. Well, as um, a friend of mine said, he was uneducated, therefore he had to educate himself and make up his own myths. And all this, so in other words, the occultism, the spiritualism, and then do you remember he went into automatic writing? Well, we, that was that was Georgie when he when he. What was that about? Well, Georgie convinced him that she. Uh, this is a hazy area. She convinced him that she could do this automatic writing. That she was just write and write, and that it would mean something. Automatic writing. But it would, could, if, for instance, if she knew that he was off with one of his girls, she would, you know, suddenly the automatic writing would be about, you know, the master must give up this. This maiden, but so the, she knew the, exactly what she was doing. He, and he was having affairs, wasn't he? I mean, he was having. Uh, he was a bit of a boy for, a the, a boy. for the ladies. Where was it? the automatic writing coming from? What was the idea that that they sat down and allowed the, the spirit to move the yeah. pen? Yeah, was that it? It was a lot of hocus. It was pocus. nonsense, wasn't it? Yeah, of course, nonsense. But it's, it was productive nonsense. Well, can I ask you this now? You're all talk about Georgie being the great inspiration of his life. What about, I didn't say she was great inspiration. What did you say? He was a great helper. Right. She, he had no languages except English. She had Latin and Greek. She had French. She was the linguist. Did she? She was highly educated, and Yeats wasn't. So she supplied all that uh, material for the mythology and so on. She was the producer. But she wasn't an inspiration. Nobody inspires an artist. Nobody inspires an artist. No. What about Maud Gone? Wasn't she the great inspiration oh, of God. his life? Maud Gone. He used her. Artists use people around them. Well, how did he They're use cannibals. Her? How did he use Did he have a physical relationship with Maud Gahn? Well, I think they probably went to bed together once. And I'm not sure that it worked very much, but I'm not interested in that. I don't care. They could have been doing it like rabbits for all I care. <laughs> you what? They could have been doing it like rabbits for all I care. It's not, all that matters is the, what he, the poetry that he got. And what did he get from Maud Gahn in terms of poetry? He got this figure of Pallas Athene, this goddess, this mythologized woman. She wasn't human. His Maud Gahn is not a human being. It's a, it's a, she's a figure of speech. She's a figure of poesy. The tower itself, um, I'm assuming that it was about Tour Balilee, where he spent time over in the West. It is. It's about the tower. But is it also to do with... Um, I suppose his age, he is reflecting in the poem, The Tower, he's reflecting on his own age. And uh, in one of the poems in the collection, the No Country for Old Men phrase comes in, which has now been used by so mm -hmm. many people. But um, is, is it also a, a reflection on the Irish, the ascendancy and their 
diminution, the coming to the end of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy? It is. One has to be very careful about making symbols out of things in, in works of art. Um, I love that note at the end of Beckett's, uh, is it Murphy, where he says, no symbols were none intended. No what? No symbols were none okay. intended. Um, of course, he saw himself as a figure in the landscape. He saw himself as a tower. At the end, you know, ruined a bit like those Norman Tower that he lived in. Georgie hated the place, by the way. It was impossible to run. The one in the West? Yeah. The co- co- over, yeah. yeah. She also hated the Georgian house in Marion Square because it was, I mean, can you imagine how cold it was? Yeah. Because they never had any money to heat it. Um, but the tower, of course, you know, yes, he, he, he would have seen it as a symbol himself. But again, that's just a way of making poetry. Mm. How did he get on with Jack, the brother, Jack Yates? They were very fond of each other. Were they? Yes. And did he... I don't think they had a great deal of contact. I mean, Yeats saw himself as a great solitary figure. like. A... And did he see Jack becoming um, a popular painter? Oh, he did, Was he yes. aware of it? Like a... He was, yeah. And encouraging? Yes. Um, and listen, Heaney was a big admirer of Yeats from, from a number of points of view, but one of them was that he changed his style, that he, was, that he changed his style. And I think you were probably meaning that that his later years, the poetry was different. It's not that he changed his style. He began to get old. He moved into a different phase. Most artists have a young phase, a middle-aged phase, and then an mm. old phase, if they live long enough. And this is simply when he got old, he, 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 he took on this new voice, this, 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 this rocky, harsh, hectoring voice. Sometimes it goes over the edge in his under Ben Balban when he's telling poets what to do and so on. It's, it just descends into rhetoric. And that's the problem with having that kind of style, that it borders on rhetoric uh, and exaggeration a lot of the time. But his greatness, not that he had such friends, his greatness that he made such poetry. Who did he admire? Whose work did he admire? Shakespeare. Wow. That was about it. Well, now. That was about it. Really? He claimed to admire, you know, the Irish poets and so on, but he didn't really. He saw him, like Joyce, he saw the literary world consisting of himself and Shakespeare. Um, who, who were the ones who admired him? Were there many? What about someone? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier on Joyce there. Um, would Joyce and Beckett have admired Yeats? Oh, yes. They would. Beckett was a lifelong admirer. Uh, he, he revered Yeats. Joyce admired him. But Joyce, as a young man, met Yeats and said to him, uh, oh, you're too old for me to influence. Ah. <laughs> Which I like. What about any of the, the English or the British uh, poets? I'm thinking of someone like Philip Larkin, maybe. Would he have... Oh, Larkin started out sounding like Yeats, but did you know, he gave it up. This is the problem with a very strong voice. It's so easy to imitate. But it's impossible to write, to make the same kind of works of art, but it's, it's easy to imitate the accent. The, and the, the poets of Yeats's time were just mesmerized by his greatness. In the tower, in that collection, 
um, he really reflects on old age and his old age, doesn't he? Was he was he a happy man? I, I mean, I'm going back to my original point, which you more or less said absolutely no no substance to it about winning the Nobel Prize. D was he a happy and satisfied man towards the end of his life? Well, because the Nobel Prize, he had a few bob. Um, he had a wonderful wife in Georgie, young woman. Did she stick educated. with him all the way through, by the way? Well, she certainly did. Yeah. And she said a wonderful thing. She said, when you're gone, they'll talk about your affairs and such things. And I will say to them how proud he was. Mm. Now, there's a wife. There's a wife. There wouldn't be many of them around today. <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. Um, but what, what way was he in his later years? He was reflecting upon old age. He was reflecting on his desires, his passions, his interests, diminishing his health, his physical well-being diminishing. But was, did he, was he reconciling himself into going into the light, the night? I suppose as a man, he was doing all those things. As a poet, he was using the material that he had. And old age was a wonderful subject for him. Look at a poem like The Circus Animal's Desertion, which is about the dying poet and his, 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 his art uh, departing, abandoning him. It's a superb poem, one of the great poems in the language. So he used everything. That's the thing about an artist. An artist uses everything available. I've enjoyed your views on that. W.B. Yeats and The Tower. We'll take a break. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 Euro per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Our health service is here for you this winter and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. And so we come to our final book today. It's called A Severed Head by Iris Murdoch and it was published in 1961 and it was set in London. It's not quite the swinging 60s yet, but the themes, marriage, adultery, incest and the characters, the seven of them, swing along in this book. It's your choice, John, John Banville. Um, may I ask, why did you choose this? 
I think it's a very fine book. Uh, it's not a great book. It's very fine. Uh, it's a wonderful comedy. It's wonderfully bleak. It's wonderfully dark. Uh, and I, it's vastly entertaining. You're not going to be offended if I say I didn't really enjoy it. I'm glad. I'm glad that we're disagreeing about something because okay. we've been too much agreement throughout this Absolutely. podcast. Okay, well, I'm, I didn't really enjoy it and I could not engage with the characters. And my feeling throughout was the characters themselves are without any depth. And I had the feeling that it was more like the circus master who is now, who is puppeteering them around the page and that it was the writer who was amusing herself rather than letting us enjoy what the characters might do unexpectedly, that she was doing all the, doing everything that the characters, I felt, should have been doing themselves or I, I just wasn't convinced. She was an odd phenomenon. She was uh, Anglo-Irish, but was an English novelist. She was a philosopher. She should have been, by rights, a highly intellectual novelist, but she wasn't. She wrote middle brown novels. She is probably the one that's most responsible for keeping the middle brown novel going after the end of modernism, after the experiments of Joyce and Beckett and so forth. She went back to writing novels that middle-class people read, and she had enormous sales. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a note from her agent to her one day back in the 70s, I think, saying, we had this £200,000 here, you know, what, what should we do with it? So she made a lot of money, sold a lot of books, was very, very popular, and kept the novel going. So she's important for that reason, if for no other. She's not interested in writing about characters or about human affairs. These are schematic novels. They're like, I mean, she always insisted that there was no connection between her philosophy and her fiction. But she had grown up in the time of logical positivism, of linguistic philosophy, and these novels are schematized versions of philosophical propositions, I think. So you don't go to them looking for... I think people were fooled. People thought they were reading about characters and, you know, the... the but they're impossible. I mean, if you look at this book, which is a, a whirl or... A, what do you call it? A merry-go-round. It's a merry-go-round of, of, of people having affairs yeah. and so on. It's, it, you know, no human beings could live this way. I jotted down a, a little, just a, a one-paragraph thing. Martin has a mistress, Georgie, and a wife, Antonia, and he loves them both, and he loves the life he leads. Then Antonia tells him she's leaving him for her psychoanalyst, but she still wants to take care of Martin. And it, and it goes on from there. I mean, okay, inter and interesting. And it's, you know, and it's absolutely silly because there's a character in it called Honor Klein, who is this, uh, I think it's, she's a Jungian psychiatrist. She is a very dark, enigmatic character. And this bibulous wine merchant, who is the, the protagonist of the book, ends up with her. It's just, it's, it's absurd. It's but absurd. it is an absurdist. And, you know, she was a great admirer of Beckett. So this is an absurdist book in the same way that Murphy was absurdist. Murphy's uh, Beckett's early novel, Murphy. Murphy. Yeah. Um, so you, 
I'm not saying that you should enjoy it. I'm simply saying that beware of looking for the wrong things, for things that aren't there. Okay. You talk about her being a philosopher. Was she, was she a philosopher who wrote novels, do you think, or was she a novelist who was also a philosopher? No, she was a novelist. She was. Uh, her philosophy is not... She wouldn't be among... She wouldn't be near the first rank of philosophers. But she loved philosophical thinking. She loved the, the discipline of philosophy. She loved making her mind work. She was very clever and a very, very odd woman. I mean, a very, very strange woman indeed. I never met her. I wish I had. I had friends who were friends with her and they said that she was just as odd. Uh, and she had this thing that she, she would never talk about herself. If you were sitting beside her at dinner, she would immediately start talking about you. Of course, all artists do this because they don't want to talk about their own work. If they're real artists, second-rate artists love to talk about themselves. Real artists don't. Don't like to talk about their work. No. What's there to say about it? I don't. I'm kind. I'm trying to process what you're what you're saying about that. So you can talk about the discipline of art, or if you want to call it a discipline, the process of art. But you can't talk about the stuff itself. What's there to say? You wouldn't say I'm writing an interesting book about the following. No. You wouldn't. I'm sorry. I'd never I, say I'm writing a book about anything. I don't write about things. I make things. Like it said about Finnegan's Wake, this is not a book uh, about something. It is the thing itself. That's what all artists aspire to. What is it about the philosophers that attracts you? I noticed that you're a huge fan of William James's. Uh, you also admire Emerson, uh, who would have influenced a lot of, uh, of philosophers coming after him. But... Um, and now you you admire um, Iris Murdoch. What is it about in my In my early days, I was a great admirer of Wittgenstein, who greatly influenced my work. Then I moved on to Heidegger. <laughs> right, I see what you mean. Right, so. I love the process of thought. I think it's a great, it's a sensual pleasure to think. When do you do your thinking? Is it while you're writing or do you... This is probably one of my... F- flaws, one of my failings as a, as a writer, as an artist, that I think too much. I'm too much infected by the bacillus of thinking. Are you thinking... T.S. Eliot said it's no, no, no task of, of the artist to think. And he's probably right. I should probably work much more instinctively. I, I'm, I'm interested, like, I'm, we're talking about Iris Murdoch, and... Um, I'm, I, it's just there's a there's a trail there between the philosophy and also the fact that there is an there's an influence in Iris Murdoch's work coming down from Henry James, whom you also admire. There there's a trail there that I I can't quite put my finger on, but I see a kind of a link between the whole lot of them. And oh yes, you. yes. Henry James instituted a version of modernism that very few novelists have followed. They were so mesmerized by, by Beckett, by the avant-garde, which is so exciting. It's so exciting to, to, you know, to, to see a book that's not even in English, like Finnegan's Wake, um, you know, and everybody starts trying to do it. To write like Henry James is not as exciting. But when Finnegan's Wake is forgotten, Henry James will still be there. And I wish more people had followed that Jamesian route of modernism. Because what James was after was to catch the feeling of being conscious. And of course, the feeling of being conscious is 
the feeling of being alive. He was after nothing less than the essence of what it is to live. So I didn't give a damn about that. Go back to Iris Murdoch. What you said she was a, a very unusual woman. What what was it about her? I, I was surprised, by the way, to learn she was born in Fibsborough in Dublin. Yeah, she was born in Fibsborough. Uh, yeah. She spent a lot of her childhood in Belfast. Then uh, the parents moved to London. She liked, especially in her later years, to pretend to be from a, a grand line of ascendancy, Protestant. Uh, Irish, but she wasn't. She was middle, middle class. Um, her father, her parents were very loving. She had a happy childhood. She was uh, very clever from the start. She loved being at school. She loved being at university. She loved sex uh, with numerous sexes. Uh, she was completely open to the world. She was one before her time, far before her time. And she didn't give a damn what people thought about her. And she was genuinely eccentric uh, in her life. I mean, she married uh, John, John Bailey, Bailey, the critic, and they led this extraordinarily eccentric life. I mean, he, he built a, a little swimming pool for her in a shed, which is essentially a sort of plunge pool. And she loved to paddle about in that for half the day. Um, their meals were extraordinary. If you read her wonderful, I think her masterpiece, a novel called The Sea, The Sea, if you read that... That's the uh, one that won the Booker Prize, isn't it? Yes, I think it did. did. Uh, there are recipes in that that are absolutely superb. Which is wonderful things like uh, only a fool and a snob would despise ketchup. Uh, it's wonderfully funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, she, she is a funny writer. You know, whether you, I, you know, the, some of the critics quoted on the flap here say, you know, it's a screamingly funny laugh. It's not funny in that way. Iris Murdoch would be horrified to think of people, you know, belly laughing over her. Would work. she? Well, I think so, yeah. because that's not what it's meant to be. And she joined the Communist Party, too. She seemed to be... She did. She was She was very active uh, in Oxford. Uh, and she was very, very committed to communism. And she was very doctrinaire. Uh, even after the Hitler-Stalin Pact in 1940, whenever it was, uh, she was still, 1939, she was still very much communist. She gave herself to causes. She mm. believed in herself. She believed in her own ideas and her own ideals. I admire her for that. Don't admire her for being communist, which is stupid. Well, I'd agree with that. But um, let, let me ask you about a severed head, to go back to that. Um, you see, the entire is set in a London fog. And I think, that, is that on purpose? So that I, I'm purposely clouding the whole thing for you, the reader. She loved fog. Two or three of her books take place really? in fog. Um, I miss fog, don't you? I hated fog. I always thought fog was terribly romantic. Did you? No. You walk along and you... You say you're walking along Marion Square at night in the fog and you hear click, 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 coming towards you. And then you get mugged. Who's going to come out? I know that. That's one you get mugged. in those days. Not in the days of the fog. The fog. You might get a costume, but not mugged. In the book, The Severed Head, I mean, there's a connection between what primitive tribes used to do about a severed head. They, they they did terrible things with the severed head of their enemy. But they also were able to take... They, they used it for, I don't know, primitive reasons. I don't know. It was all sorts of psychological reasons added into it. She raises all kinds of hairs in this book about the primitive and about uh, the roots of psychology and so on. She doesn't really follow them. What she writes mm. is of sparkling 
metaphysical comedy. Metaphysical poets would have, would have enjoyed this book. Amusing herself. Well, that's what all artists do. Do you think we do it for you people? No, we don't. <laughs> we do it for ourselves. <laughs> it's great then, so it doesn't bother you if you don't sell a single copy. So it doesn't bother you because you wrote it for yourself. Even if it doesn't sell, then you're very happy. Is that the idea? I need food and drink and a place to sleep. So I have to have some money. These are the vulgarities of but, life. Uh, <laughs> well, if, look, if you write for money, Dr. Johnson is completely wrong. You're a damn fool if you write for money. Mm. Why did you write as Benjamin Black? For money. <laughs> but Benjamin Black books are not, they're not, they don't aim to be art. They're works of craft. They're craftsmanship. Is it easier to write a Benjamin Black novel than to, than to go in to, than to embark upon a John Banville? No, not at all. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> it's a different way of working. It's a completely different way of working. It is, isn't it? John, thanks a million. Um, enjoyed all that. Uh, today's three books were Coke Land, K-O-C-H Land, The Secret History of the Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America by Christopher Leonard, The Tower by W.B. Yeats, and A Severed Head by Iris Murdoch. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and you'll join us again for Take Two. Uh, John Banville, again, my thanks. And on behalf of Senior Times, this is Mike Murphy saying goodbye. Goodbye.